You are now listening to the August 20th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saints. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with 12 Apostles of Jesus. John recorded the book of John around 70 to 90 AD. The books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke were already recorded, and he was recording the book of John, the last book of the gospel. So he mainly recorded events that were not recorded in the books of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Of course, All of the writing was deeply involved by the Holy Spirit, who is the actual writer of the Bible, but the book of John was an important book that was to be read as it was at the early churches. There were not many people who knew what happened exactly. Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven, and all the other fellow disciples were martyred. John could have written the book making himself important, He could have written the book like this. John, John, he was such a great disciple. John, John, he was the most brilliant disciple among the 12 disciples. John, John, he was the most respected disciple among the 12 disciples. But John, in his old age, did not reveal himself ever when he wrote the book of John in which he reminisced the three years he was with Jesus when he was a teenager. John never revealed his name in the book of John. He recorded himself as one of the disciples, the other disciple, or the disciple whom Jesus loved. John sought a high place and wanted to exercise his name when he was young, and he did not accept other people because he wanted to keep the authority all to himself. But later, he became a humble disciple who raised up Jesus and fellow disciples instead of raising up himself. The second spiritual lesson we can learn from Apostle John is that we must become humble Christians. Pastor Charles Spurgeon said this in one of his sermons, God takes care of the other sins with his fingers, but he takes care of pride with his sleeves up. So we must fight against pride continually. In a famous Korean movie, Champion, which depicted the boxer, Duk-gu Kim, who was dreaming to become a world champion, his trainer tells him this, Stand in front of the mirror. A boxer must see himself more often than Miss Universe. It is because the true opponent that you have to fight against is in there. From now on, you must fight against the person in the mirror in front of you, That is, you and you only need to win yourself. I believe perhaps John was like that as well. John sought high positions. He did not accept other people. But in his late years, he must have looked at himself and said to himself, I am fighting against a proud John who is inside of me. I am going to win over you. And finally, he fought and won against himself who had a lot of pride and was seeking high positions. 
He leaves a wonderful book, which we call the Gospel of John, in which he never mentions his name. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34 says this, Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. James chapter 4, verse 10 says this, Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I hope we will be humble in front of the Lord and when dealing with people, remembering these words. On the day Jesus was captured, John also became afraid and ran away with the other disciples. But he returned in front of the cross where Jesus was hung. John was the disciple who accompanied Jesus to the cross and the only disciple who heard Jesus' last seven words on the cross. Jesus looked at John and said to him, Let's read John chapter 19, verse 26 and 27. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Jesus specifically asked John to take care of his mother Mary. Jesus had other brothers, but I believe Jesus specifically asked John to take care of his mother because he knew how much John loved him and knew that John was a disciple who would live the longest. Biblical scholars estimate that John had taken care of Jesus' mother Maria for at least 40 years to 60 years, the most from this point. John usually stayed at Ephesus and took care of Jesus' mother Mary. While John was taking care of Jesus' mother at Ephesus, he had to endure the pain of having to lose his fellow disciples as martyrs. According to the Christian traditional story, John spent a long time mourning when Peter, to whom he was close, was crucified on a cross upside down. The rest of his fellow disciples were also martyred gloriously while boldly spreading the gospel of Jesus. Whenever he heard how his fellow disciples were martyred, he must have also have wanted to die for Jesus. But God had a different plan for John. The rest of Jesus' disciples were all martyred, and even their disciples were being martyred. So there was no leaders to take care of and teach people in the early churches. So I believe God wanted John to serve the Christian community and take care of them until the end. Unlike the first martyr, his brother Andrew, John was a disciple who lived long and died of a natural cause. But scholars say John was a martyr who lived. John was the only living disciple among the twelve disciples and spread the living word of Jesus to the community and established churches by recording the books of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John to the people in the early churches. Beloved listeners, dying for Jesus is ever so glorious, but it is also glorious to live for Jesus. John was a disciple who built church communities by becoming a martyr who lived. I hope we all will become just like the Apostle John and be able to build the community as the Lord commands and serve it. 
This concludes today's episode of 12 Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Thy goodness faileth never Good shepherd may I sing your praise Within your house forever Within your house forever Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Joshua Vincent of Trinity Bible Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is, God Raised Jesus Christ from the Dead. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Joshua. The Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, Christian. That's a right now reality. And we see this first in verse 1, where Paul says, There is now no condemnation. For those who are in Christ Jesus. It is amazing what he begins to unpack out of this reality that we read in 8.1. And as we read it, I want to encourage you to slow down. I know you're hungry for Easter lunch, but I want to give you an appetite for God's Word. Don't rush it. Let's read it slow. Just one verse. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the best news you'll ever hear if you're in Christ. And we want to meditate on these words. Now, in this verse, signals the most dramatic turn in the history of the world. Now assumes a then. A time before the now. Every human once stood condemned. Paul used this word for condemnation back in Romans 5.18 where he said, one trespass led to condemnation for all men. I looked up this word for condemnation in a Greek dictionary and it said that it does not denote merely a pronouncement of guilt. You were condemned, you were guilty. But it goes beyond that. It It also adds to it the adjudication of punishment. You are guilt, and here is the result. This is courtroom language. God is the just judge who looked down on a fallen humanity, that is, all of us apart from Christ, and declared all people to be guilty and handed them over to the consequence of their sin, which is enslavement to two deaths. The first death, which is our physical body, when it dies... But that's not when we're done. That's just a preamble to the second death, which is the death that we read about in Revelation 20. A death that was meant for fallen angels and for all unrepentant sinners who don't turn to Christ. It is described as a place of eternal conscious suffering. Now, how did humanity become condemned? When the first human Adam sinned, his one trespass, we all sinned with him and inherited his sin nature. We are sinners by nature and by choice. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. Now just think about it. With the swing of a gavel, the just judge pronounced every single human being guilty and condemned them to death. Every one of us was born on death row, awaiting a death that is only a preamble to the greater second death. If you think about it, this life prior to Christ 
was the long last meal for humanity enslaved by sin and death awaiting the fire. We had no future, no hope, only condemnation. Quite different than what we find in Romans 8.1. God so loved us that He sent His Son Jesus Christ who died on the cross in our place to satisfy God's just wrath for sinners. He made a way for sinners to be made right with God. Christians have been justified by faith alone. If you are justified, you are not condemned. Now can you imagine being on death row when your day comes to walk that green mile? And at the last moment, Jesus enters in to your cell, takes your orange jumpsuit, and says, I am dying in your place. And he does. He satisfies the, just, the judge's just penalty in full. And exchange says, you are now a free child of God. All of the resources that he has at his disposal are yours. That is quite the change. Now, in Romans 8.1, announces that new state of affairs where there was only condemnation for everyone all the time. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't want you to miss how profound this statement is for all of us. Christian brothers and sisters, Paul is talking about the certainty of our futures at the final judgment. When he is talking about condemnation, he is not just talking about a present reality. He is talking about a future reality, the day when we will all come before the just judge. And he says on that day, there is no condemnation. And that is such a beautiful, amazing, powerful reality and declaration that it actually invades the present experience of your now everyday life. See, Paul did not say that there is no condemnation for now. Important distinction. He says there is now no more condemnation. Paul's not just talking about confidence before God today. He's talking about confidence on the last day. In fact, I love what one New Testament scholar Tom Schreiner said about this. He said the future deliverance from death has invaded the present world and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? There is a sense in which that deliverance from death has invaded our very experience today. That changes everything. Paul did not say there is no condemnation for now. He says there is now, therefore, no more condemnation. That's good news. I think it's helpful for us to be reminded of what Paul does not promise here, though. I think sometimes when we think about the reality that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, we might imagine that he says something different than what he actually says. Have you all ever had that experience? You can ask my wife about how that happens all the time. I think I said one thing, but I said something else. She's got a much better memory than I do. Notice that Paul does not say there is therefore now no fighting of indwelling sin. He doesn't say there is now no more divine discipline for disobedience or no feeling of condemnation or self-accusation that you begin to question even yourself if you truly love God. He doesn't say there's now therefore nothing for which a believer deserves to die for in this first death. No, this broken world is full of fights, loss, and deep sorrows. But if we are in Christ Jesus, our futures are incredibly bright and rest secure. That's the hope that he gives us. But catch this. 
Faith unites us with Jesus such that we are in Christ Jesus and have property in him. We are so with him, we have property with Christ, but Jesus also gives every Christian the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit in verses 2 to 4. These are amazing verses. Jesus condemns sin in the flesh so that Christians can walk according to the Spirit. Now, you'll remember in Romans 1, there's a lot of I, I this and I that, where Paul is speaking of his own experience, and I think as well as the experience of every Christian. So you'd expect him in verse 2 to continue to talk about me or himself, but instead, notice what he says in verses 2 to 3. He says, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh. Paul is contrasting here the law of the Spirit with the law of sin and death. He's already shown that fallen humanity can't obey God left to himself. And Paul couldn't be more clear here. Weakened flesh, it cannot please God. See, God, in verses 2 to 3, does what the law and humans themselves could not do for themselves. God is actually entering in to help a people who are helpless. God sent His Son, and I'll take note in these verses, His pre-existent Son, so that He came in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. When you read that, that statement really threads a theological needle in some ways that you might not realize what's going on. Notice when he says in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin that he didn't show up in the flesh of sin. As though he partook in sin, like Ebionite heresy that was taught early on. Nor does he say that he was in the likeness of flesh, as though he didn't really have a body, like he was a hologram or something, like Docetism taught early in the church as a heresy. No, this phrase tells us a couple of things about Jesus, that he was truly and fully human. He was human-human, the most human-human to ever live, and yet sinless in every way. Now, I take for sin here that's added on to the end of that to actually mean something that might not be so clear, but I take it to mean in the likeness of sinful flesh as a sin offering. Jesus came as in the likeness of a sin offering. He was offered as a sacrifice on behalf of his people to pay the just penalty of the sins of his people. See, Jesus flipped the script on sin in the flesh. You'll remember that sin used the law to bring condemnation to all of humanity. But here we find that God is actually condemning sin. Did you catch that? God condemns sin in the flesh of Jesus on the cross. Now the point here is, is that God powerfully saves sinners who are powerless to save themselves. God did what we could not do. Isn't it good news that we have a God who helps those who can't help themselves? Now I know there's some who, who give this idea that there's a type of Christianity, a sort of brand of Christianity, and it comes in a lot of different forms, but it's this idea that you can put your faith in Christ. And you can have him as your savior. But that you can kind of go on living as is without any change in your life. Really kind of like fire insurance that's going to keep you secure on the last day. 
Well, let me just be super clear about the nature of what Paul is saying throughout his letter. That is no biblical, God-inspired, spirit-inspired, and strengthened kind of message. That is a human, worldly, earthly, fleshly message. No, if, if we have met the Holy Spirit, then it's going to change us. It's kind of like an illustration that my brother Malachi uses all the time in our membership class. He talks about the person that goes outside and uh, comes back in and he's a little bit late and the people are like, where were you? And he says, oh, well, I'm sorry, I was outside and I was walking across the street and I got hit by an 18-wheeler and then kind of drugged me for a little bit. I got away and I'm back and I'm good. I think that people would think you were a liar if you said that happened and your clothes weren't wrinkled, there was no blood, like you were alive. Like people would just think like that did not happen. Why? Well, because if you get hit by a Mack truck, it's going to change you in some way, right? Like you just expect that. Well, in the same way, think about it. If you meet the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the eternal God who created everything by the very words of his mouth, you would expect that that would bring about change in your life. And not only that, if we're told here in the scriptures that that was his purpose, then you better believe that God is going to bring about the things which he promises. So what does this not mean? I think it's important just to realize that. Let, 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 me, let me clarify what this doesn't mean. The fact that you have the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit is changing you from the inside out, it doesn't mean that Christians don't struggle with sinful desires. Romans 7, I believe, shows us that they do. I don't think that it means that Christians don't sin. In fact, the first John 1, 8 to 9 tells us that if anybody says that they're not a sin, or that they haven't sinned, that they're actually deceiving themselves and that the truth is not in them. But those who confess their sins will find that God is faithful and just both to forgive them of their sins and cleanse them of all unrighteousness. We need to know that, that Christians, it doesn't mean that Christians don't sin because we have the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean that Christians will reach perfection before Jesus returns. That will not happen until we receive our new bodies which are free from sin and death completely. We still live under the shadow of Adam. Notice third in verses 5 to 11. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead indwells the Christian. The Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, he indwells every Christian. Now the four in verses 5 to 11 that begins it there, I think it's telling us that this is the ground of verse 4. All verses 5 to 11, it's grounding what he has said in verse 4. This explanation for how Christians keep the law and walk according to the Spirit. Uh, Don't miss this. As we read through this, this is important to understand what he's saying. Paul's not telling Christians in Rome not to walk according to the flesh here. You should not walk according to the flesh. He's going to say that in a minute. But here, Paul's describing the identity of someone who is either of the flesh or of the Spirit. I take it that Paul's helping us to identify that the ultimate nature of someone who is either of the flesh or of the Spirit can be identified in these ways. Now, do you see what he's doing? He's just describing the difference between those walking according to the flesh, which is everyone apart from Christ, and those in Christ who have the Holy Spirit. He's saying, you see, these are two different kinds of people. Now, I think that's important for understanding how we read this. Notice first, he highlights the complete inability of the flesh to please God in verses 5 to 8. And he just, he isn't letting it go. And in verses 5 to 6, he says this, 
For those who live according to the flesh, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the, the Spirit, they set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to see the, set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. See, every person's manufactured default setting is driven by the flesh mindset. Uh, that's the identity of everyone outside of Christ. Every, uh, everyone in the flesh <clears throat> treasures something other than Christ. That's the identity of everyone outside of Christ. They treasure the good things that God created above their creator God. They use the good things that God has created for us in ways that he did not intend. One way to think about it is those in the flesh bend their lives around their flesh and the desires of the flesh rather than bending their lives around the will of God. They're not manipulating themselves or changing themselves to look more like Jesus, but instead what they're trying to do is actually bend their lives around how to get more of this thing that they treasure above everything else, including God. And it might not just be one thing, but verse 6, notice how he jumps from the heart of a person to the ultimate destination. He says, this is where those in the flesh and those in the spirit are going, who treasure these things in this way. I'm not even talking about the way they walk yet. It's just, if they love this, this is where they end up. What you treasure in your heart, it has eternal implications. Do, do you hear that? Like, the thing that you love, it is taking you somewhere. You might, even not, you might not even know that you've bought a plane ticket, but you're on your way. And it's not just that a flesh mindset leads you to death, physical death. But as we said before, it, it's speaking here, I think, of eternal consequences of that second death. A spirit mindset leads to eternal life and peace with God. Now listen close. Paul is unpacking the identity of every person outside of Christ in verses 7 to 8. He's getting more clear. They don't have peace with God. Do you, do you see that in verses 7 to 8? Christians have peace with God. Those in the flesh, they don't have peace with God. For the mind that is set on the flesh, he says, is hostile towards God. Hostility is not peace. Hostility is the opposite of peace. It is fighting against God. Why? For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Did you catch that? The flesh mindset of those outside of Christ? Hostile to God? No peace? Now please just listen close. You don't have to be an angry atheist like Richard Dawkins who blames Christianity and religion for all of the world's ills to actually be hostile towards God. I know that sometimes when I share Christ with others, they're like, I'm not mad at God. I just don't really much care about Him. According to the Scriptures, God created you and you don't have a right not to care about Him. According to the cross, the cross of Christ, where God sent His Son to die for you. He, he let His eternal perfect Son, who was sinless, die in your place. 
you don't have a right not to respond to God's means of having peace with Him. You don't even need to think of yourself as hostile to God. There is a kind of passive atheism that simply treasures this world and ignores their Creator and Redeemer. You could be hostile towards God and not even being willing to recognize it. But Paul's highlighting the inability of someone with a flesh mindset to submit to God's law. They, they can't do it. Even if they wanted to, they can't, and they don't even want to. And those in the flesh can't please God. The law, even you yourself, are powerless to save yourself from the death that awaits you. That's what Paul is saying. But notice how Paul addresses Christians in verses 9 to 11. It, it's so much different. He says, the spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. There's a power at work in you. Look at verses 9 to 10. This is what he says. You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now this is breathtaking. Paul has just told us that every Christian wars against indwelling sin in Romans 7. But here Paul says, the same Holy Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That same Spirit in you. Now, Roman, Roman Christians fought over their Jewish and Gentile backgrounds. And throughout history, there were wars between Jews and Gentiles. They were fighting over all kinds of things, ethnic and covenantal. But God says, now that Christ has come, Humanity is actually broken up by Him into those who are in the flesh and those who are in the Spirit. Like, that's the real question. Are you in Christ or are you in the world, in the flesh? And even more profound, if you're in the Spirit, the Spirit is in you. That is shocking news. Now, hopefully if you're not a Christian, that's not shocking news. But if you think about in redemptive history, that is shocking news. Ezekiel spoke of a day in chapter 36 where he would give his spirit to people so that they could obey God. And here we're already beginning to experience the partial down payment of that promise. More is yet to come when Jesus returns. But did you also know that the spirit is the spirit of God and the spirit of Christ? Think about this. God the Father. God the Son. God the Spirit. Coming to indwell you so that you can make it to the end. So that you can live a righteous life. So that you can love God. So that you can fulfill all that He made you to fulfill. So that you can be the human that He made you to be. To glorify Him rather than rebelling against Him. See, Christ in us means our physical body is dead due to sin. Our physical body is wasting away. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Now, I take the Spirit as life because of righteousness to mean that the life that the Spirit produces now is in the lives of the believers. He is producing new life already. Now, we will not always be saddled with these weak, corruptible bodies. Played basketball last weekend. There was a day when I could grab the rim. I had to take three days off after the game. Not proud to, to say that to you today, but there were pains in places I didn't know I had. 
It's a weak, corruptible body. It's passing away. It's not what it used to be. But one day, one day the life-giving spirit will overcome sin and death through the resurrection of our bodies. Like not just our spirit like sort of floating off into something that we don't know yet. We will have real bodies and a new heaven and a new earth with pleasures that we cannot imagine with senses that are unencumbered by sin. What a day! Resurrection Sunday declares it's about to get really good. We don't know when it's coming, but we're ready. See, believers die because of sin, but are raised because of righteousness. Now, righteousness here is speaking of the righteousness that is credited to our account based on Jesus' cross work that we receive by faith. Now, Tom Schreiner explains that in verse 10, what he's saying is, is that believers will be raised from the dead by the life-giving Spirit on the basis of the righteousness of God, even though their bodies are dead because of sin. We still get new bodies. So verse 10 says our future bodily resurrection is promised by Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Resurrection Sunday, we are looking back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which declares all of the promises and benefits that are good for the Christian who has put their faith in Jesus. But you know what it also does? It looks forward. We're coming too. New bodies, new heavens, new earth. That's what this day declares. But until then, here's what verse 11 says. You're not alone. Again, read this slowly. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and Christian, he's assuming that he is, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you catch that twice, we read it slowly, but twice, Paul repeats that Jesus was raised from the dead. Do you know why people repeat things? Do you know why people repeat things? It catches your attention. It focuses you. He says, I want you to make sure you don't miss this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily from the dead. And then Paul says, because Jesus was raised, Jesus will also raise up our mortal bodies through his indwelling spirit on the last day. What a promise. Paul wants us to see that the promise of the resurrection of Jesus Christ to Christians is that we too will be raised from the dead on the last day. And that the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is already, already in the here and now at work in us, transforming us, shaping our loves and our desires more and more to the will of God. More and more we look like Christ in the way that we live until one day, physically, we look like Christ with our new bodies. Now, Augustine broke up humanity into four states. I have a, a picture here to kind of give you, uh, hopefully, a visual of the way that Redemptive history has been working out for us. Pre-fall man, Adam, he was able to sin and able not to sin. And able to not sin. Post-fall man, Adam after he sinned and all humanity after him, was able to sin but unable to not sin. We can't be righteous apart from Christ. But what about reborn man? Those who have been regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is able to sin and able not to sin. 
That's good news. That's, that's a new day. That's different. We can please God. We couldn't please God prior to Christ, but in Christ we can please God. But there's a greater day that's coming, glorified man, when Jesus returns. And then we will be able to not sin, and catch this, unable to sin. Long for that day. I can't wait for that day. How about you guys? You want to sign up for that? Like we won't want to. We get what we want, which is to please God. We want what's best for us. Now let me just draw some applications from this as we close. First, if the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead, he can transform you. Look, I know what it's like to struggle with sin, to struggle with fear, shame, to struggle in your walk with Christ, and feel so powerless. Did you know that even pastors feel that sometimes? Like, you just even wonder, like, am I praying right? How do I beat sin? How do I love you as I ought to? And you can feel beaten down. And if you're not spending regular time in prayer, regular time in the Word of God, regular time seeking to put sin to death and try to live under God, to be obedient to Him, if you're not doing those things, then more and more, it would not surprise me, because I found this in my life, you will feel defeated. Less and less will you feel the power of the Holy Spirit and sense it. doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit isn't with you, but there's less and less a sense in which you sense the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling in you and working through you. Christian, if you feel overwhelmed by indwelling sin, be reminded that the Holy Spirit indwells you. And greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The Holy Spirit in you means that God is for you against your sin. God has not left you in your sin, Christian. You are not on your own. You are not by yourself. You might have people who you thought loved you and abandoned you, and maybe God's like that. God does not abandon you in your sin. He is with you and for you. So much so that He has given you His Spirit, which He will not take away from His people. That's the new day that we live in in the new covenant. God put sin and death to death by sending His Son to the cross. And because Jesus lives, you don't have to sin anymore. We can fight sin through the power of the Holy Spirit. Second, sanctification takes grace-fueled, Spirit-empowered effort. Now, we didn't get to verses 12 to 13 this morning, but everything is really preamble to verses 12 to 13 where he says, put sin to death. Before you can do that, you need to know what it looks like, the difference between being a person of the flesh and a person of the Spirit. But sanctification, it takes grace-fueled, Spirit-empowered effort. Put your back into holiness. Put your back into loving Jesus. Don't listen to the lies where people say, oh, it's not a big deal if you obey Jesus. Like, you know, he'll work it out in the end. No, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, then you love what God loves. Third, if you're suffering from pain or facing physical death this morning, I, I just want to give you encouragement. The, the new body that you long for is coming. It is coming. To, you will be relieved of your pain and your suffering. You will be relieved of your, your despair. You will receive a new body. There is joy that's coming that goes beyond anything that you can imagine. And I really believe this. Hear me, brother and sister. If you're struggling this morning, if you're suffering, I love you. And I want you to know that there is coming a day when you're going to experience joy and glory that is going to make even the great pain that you're going through right now seem so small. And I know you can't imagine it, but that day's coming, and that's the faith of the believer. There is a day coming when we will receive resurrection bodies. They will be so much different than these bodies that we're left with right now. 
Fourth, if you're not a Christian, we are grateful that you're with us this morning. And I know I've been talking a lot to Christians. But if you're not a Christian, what what that means, and what this means for you is that, that you haven't put your faith in Jesus and you're still condemned according to God's word. But here's the good news. So many of us in this room were condemned. All of us were once condemned. But now, many of us are in Christ Jesus. And I want you to catch this. Uh, I'm super encouraged that a number of you have invited your friends to come to church today. Friends who don't know Jesus, love Christ, who are interested in learning about Him. Uh, Here's my guess, if you're here and you're a non-Christian. Somebody invited you. Somebody who has put their faith in Jesus, who loves Christ, whose life has been changed, who is in process, they have not been perfected yet, they're on their way, they're waiting for Jesus to come, and they're being led by the Holy Spirit until then, but there is something that has changed so significantly that they look at the world anew. They see beauty that they didn't see before, they see meaning and purpose that they didn't see before, and they wanted you to get in on this deal. They wanted you to come and hear the good news of what Jesus Christ has done, who he is, and who he can be for you. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to come to Christ this morning. You can find me. You can turn to your friend and say, I want Jesus. And we'll talk to you about what that looks like. Here's another thing. I know that like it's Easter and you're really hungry, but can I give you a homework assignment? You came, I'm I'm just guessing, with someone that you love. Would you ask them to tell you more about Jesus? Would you tell them the problems that you're having, the struggles that you're having with putting your faith in him? And would you even, if you're willing to go this far, I know this is three things, but even ask them to pray that the Lord would, by the power of his spirit, raise you to newness of life and give you a desire to know and love him. Like, let's do that this morning. I would love if we're about to celebrate a baptism, and I would love if some weeks from now, a number of you were baptized and you came to Christ on Easter Sunday. What a day that would be. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come before you, we praise you for your son, whom you gave to die for us. But Lord, he is not dead anymore. You raised him. You raised him from the dead. And he lives even now, interceding for us. And he has given us his spirit so that we might worship you as we ought. And so God, I pray this morning, Lord, that you would raise our affections, raise our affections towards Christ. Help us to remain faithful until you raise us up on the last day. And Father, I pray for those who might be here who are at least interested in Christ. Father, I pray that you would meet with them, that whatever words are shared with them from your people would actually come with the power of your spirit. It's in the name of your great son, Jesus, that we do pray. i
The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundsted, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. Everything we need for the Christian life is found in Christ and His Word. I think you'd probably say yes. I believe if I asked 10 believers the same question, it would probably be the same answer. Yet unfortunately, I find throughout the contemporary church, which obviously contains some true believers and obviously some make-believers, many in a practical sense do not believe that Christ and His Word is sufficient for everything. Many don't believe that. And what do I mean by that? Let me give you an example. It seems, though, in our pulpits these days, much emphasis in seminaries or whatever it might be has to do with psychology or man's wisdom rather than God's Word. Just listen to a Christian radio show or look at a Christian recovery book or listen to a contemporary sermon. You're going to see or hear a Bible verse or two, some truth maybe, some truth in the context of what's being shared there. Yet you're not going to see a complete dependence on the sufficiency of Christ through the Word to address everything pertaining to life and godliness. It's very subtle. It's very subtle. And we are tempted ourselves to think that, well, you know, these things are issues that God's Word maybe doesn't address or whatever it might be, and to then try to figure things out on our own. But we're going to see today that we have everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And within that, I pray that we would understand what this really means. So would you turn your Bibles to Second Peter? And we are looking at chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 2 through 4. And it's a tremendous portion of Scripture. It's so wonderful. I wish I could spend weeks on it, actually, but I can't. I'm just going to spend today, Lord willing. And the reason why is it all goes together. It all goes together. We need to see this section here together. Okay, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. Now, a reminder of the context of this wonderful book that we've just begun studying. Simon Peter is the writer. He is a bondservant and an apostle of Jesus Christ, verse 1. He is writing to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to believers, As we saw last week, those who have received a genuine saving faith as God's Word produced conviction by the Spirit of God and we responded in faith to the Gospel and were saved. Now within this, is he writing to anyone specifically? Well, in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing you in which I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. 
Well, we know in his first letter, he wrote to those who were in Asia Minor, those who had been born again to a living hope to the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And yet this letter seems to go beyond that to, as we see in verse 1, to all believers, those who have a same faith, the same faith as the apostles had, a genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to see this today, but really the theme of the book is revealed in the verses we're going to look at today. Grace and peace, verse 2, be multiplied to you in the knowledge of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power is granted to us everything pertaining to life and God is through the true knowledge of Him. Throughout this book, we see the focus on a true knowledge and a relationship with Jesus Christ, as we'll see through the Word of God. It's laced through this book, and the book also has warnings to those who would come alongside and divert you or distort or distract you from the Word of God that you would not completely rely in Christ and walk with Him through His Word. It's a wonderful book, and Peter is, as we see on his, we could say, deathbed. He knows from the Lord that he's going home soon. It is his last words to these believers and to us. And it's interesting in the last words we have from Peter and from the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, the focus is Christ and his word and then the threats to that relationship. He says this is a reminder. If you look in chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore I shall always be ready to remind you of these things even though you already know them and have been established in the truth which is present with you. The reality is what we're going to see today, if you're a true believer, we know these things. We understand them, but something happens. We become dull. We forget those things. Peter says it's right to remind you. He'll say that later on in chapter 3. He says in chapter 3, verse 1, This now, beloved, is the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. And even back in chapter 1, going backwards in verse 15, he says, And I will also be diligent that at a time after my departure, you may be able to call these things to mind. And that's what we want to do. We don't want to just come to the message, listen to it, and go out and not have it affect our lives. We need to call these things to mind. As we're going to see, it is so important. It is so important. So this is a reminder of the truth of God, which is how we walk in a relationship with God and the threats to that truth. Okay, so with that in mind, Peter gives his last words in his second epistle, and they are very important. And they are ultimately a reminder to us as true believers how to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ through his word. So with that in mind, you know, if you do a search how to live the Christian life, you're going to find a lot of entries on the internet, or there's a lot of books, how to walk the Christian walk, how to live the Christian life. How are we to do so? How do we live this new life that we have in Christ? We're going to see that everything we need is found in Jesus through his word. Let's read our passage. And I'm going to back up to verse 1 in 2 Peter chapter 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, and here's our passage, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these, 
He has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Tremendous passage, tremendous reminder, tremendous reality. You know, how are we going to live the Christian life? I think, first of all, we need to understand it is God's desire for us that we increase in the context of His grace and peace. That that is multiplied in our lives. This is God's desire for us. Look at verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And as I've already shared, and I shared last week, we have who this letter is from. It's from Peter, a bondservant apostle, who it is to, those with a like faith. And this is the greeting right here in verse 2. This is how Peter greets them, inspired by the Spirit. And then we have a connection to that which explains how this is done. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. You could literally translate it this way. Grace to you and peace. May it be multiplied. It's in a Greek mood that's not used often. It's an optative mood which speaks of a desire. This is Peter's desire inspired by the Holy Spirit. May it be multiplied. May this happen in your life. It expresses a desire. And this is God's desire as Peter's inspired by the Holy Spirit. God's desire for us is that His grace and thus peace is multiplied in our lives. This term multiplied speaks of just that, increasing, abounding. So you say, what is this grace? What is he talking about, grace multiplied? What does he mean by that? How is grace multiplied in our lives? What is he talking about? Is it grace upon us? Is it functioning as grace? What is he talking about? Well, first of all, we need to understand what grace is. What grace is. The term translated grace, charis, in its most basic form, speaks of an unearned gift, unmerited favor, non-matorious favor, favor that is freely bestowed, never in return for merit or work done. So simply, unmerited favor. It is basic Greek form, but yet in Scripture we see there's a context in which we see the term grace over and over again. You see, it is none other than an attribute of the living God. Indeed, Peter himself said in his last letter, he spoke of the God of all grace. The God of all grace, chapter 5, verse 10. God is the one who is gracious. Any grace there is at all is from Him. Any true grace, any grace between us is Him through us, as we'll see, by His Spirit. And the only way we can understand grace is in the context of the God of all grace. You see, indeed, God's unmerited favor towards mankind is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. Take, for instance, John chapter 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh, that's Christ, He took on human flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten One. And what's that glory they beheld? His character, full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. What about 2 Corinthians 8, 9? Very interesting, in the context of the Apostle Paul exhorting the Corinthians to hold their pledge of a gift that they had made for Jerusalem, but yet they weren't going to do it because they had issues with Paul because false teachers had gotten in on their hearts. 
Paul encourages them in the context to hold that pledge, to give what they had promised, but not from a compulsion, but from a cheerful heart. And within that, he shares the greatest gift that was ever given. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that yet though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, that through his poverty you might become rich. He humbled himself. He left his glory and his throne to take on human flesh, to be abused and crucified by his own creation according to a predetermined plan, to be delivered up by the hands of ungodly men, but yet according to the plan to die for our sins. He became poor that we might become rich, that we might have salvation. And he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus. We don't deserve it. God is a gracious God. He is the God of all grace. Titus chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, verse 11, bringing salvation to all men. God's grace has been manifested in the person of Jesus Christ coming and dying in our place. Suffering and dying, shedding his blood for us. God's saving grace is summed up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. All from him and nothing from us. Turn to Ephesians chapter 2 for a second. Ephesians 2, hold your place in Second Peter. When you think of grace, think of Christ. Think of what God did through His Son, the grace of God being manifest. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love which He loved us, even while when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. And then you notice what He says. For by grace, or by grace you have been saved. You were dead in your sins. You had nothing that God needed or wanted in that sense from your own abilities or whatever it might be. We were dead in our sins and God was gracious. And through the gospel, the message they heard and believed, the gospel of salvation, chapter 1, they were saved by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And raised up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. We're going to be trophies of the grace of God forever and ever and ever in the ages to come. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. God saved us. We didn't deserve it. We didn't merit it. God was gracious, and he saved us by his grace. Grace is what God does for sinful man through his Son, which man cannot earn, does not deserve, or will never merit. Now, not only is God's grace manifest in salvation, it's by his grace that we as believers function. It's by his grace that we function. Everything from Christ, nothing from us. Indeed, Peter would share in his last letter that even the spiritual gifting that we are all stewards, that we have all been given, 1 Peter 4, verses 10 and 11, the spiritual gifting are manifestations of the manifold grace of God. I can't do this apart from Him completely. You can't serve Him apart from Him. We can't walk with Him apart from depending on Him and Him graciously doing what we don't deserve on a daily basis. What did the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? He said, For I am the least of the apostles, verse 9, of whom not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Hey, worst thing you could do is mess with the church, by the way. Worst sin there is. 
and the gospel, right? But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me did not prove vain, but I labored more than all of them, that's the other apostles, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. We function by God's grace. We function by depending upon him, relying on him, and him working through us that which is pleasing as we trust him. What did the Lord Jesus share with the Apostle Paul concerning that thorn that Paul had in the flesh, that he prayed three times to be removed, that it would be removed? A messenger of Satan that was given to him, that he wouldn't boast because of what he had seen, right? And what was the Lord's answer? Turn to 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8. The Christian life is about grace, by the way. It's about relying on Christ completely. It's about Him doing in us what we don't deserve. And He's gracious, the God of all grace. 2 Corinthians 12.8 Concerning this, I entreated the Lord three times that it might depart from me. That's the thorn in the flesh, He said. And He said to me, what? My grace is sufficient for you. And he's going to explain, for power is perfected or completed in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I'd rather boast about my weaknesses that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. He says, my grace is sufficient. We are saved by the grace of God. And we are to function by the grace of God. But if you're honest with yourself, we don't always function by the grace of God, do we? We don't always completely rely on Him. Nothing from us, everything from Him. We don't always do that. But it is God's desire, back to our passage, that grace, His grace, by the way, and thus peace, be multiplied to you. Now, by the way, the way it's structured, grace to you and peace points to the reality that when we experience his grace, the result is peace. Obviously, in initial salvation, we have peace with God because of the grace of God. And also we have peace when we are relying on Christ. They go together. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. The Christian life is about functioning in the grace of God. Everything from him, nothing from us. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, apart from me, you can do nothing. Remember what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we are adequate to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. The Christian life is about functioning in the grace of God and God's desire for those who have the same faith as the apostles, true believers... God's desire is that His grace and peace be multiplied. That it would increase. That we would more and more and more rely on His grace. That we would allow Him to function through us by His grace more and more and more and more. That it would be increased. That it would be multiplied. Practically speaking, God wants us to function in the context of a dependent relationship on Him, as we're going to see, trusting in His Son, Jesus Christ, allowing His Word to grow us in the knowledge of His Son. Now what's interesting is 
Peter had shared this exact same Greek phrase. Now it's translated differently, but it's the exact same Greek phrase in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 2. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. But yet in our passage, there's something added to it. Notice what it says. Verse 2 of 2 Peter 1. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. And here we have the sphere in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We saw in verse 1 last time that Jesus is our God and Savior. There is one God revealed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he is saying that it would be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And later on we're going to see it's primarily focused on the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's the focus. And again, I believe it's pointing to the reality. Jesus Christ is God. Jesus is God. Knowledge of our God and Jesus Notice this incredible statement, our Lord. You see, you were the Lord of your life. You were the Lord of your life before you came to Christ. You did what you wanted. You did what you pleased. You didn't fear anything. You didn't fear God. Maybe you feared circumstances. And Christ convicted us that he is Lord of all, that he died for our sins, and we called upon the name of the Lord, and we were saved. He is our Lord. And this grace and peace is to be multiplied in the context of those who acknowledge the Lordship of Christ. It's to be multiplied in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. The term Jesus speaks of his humanity. Matthew one twenty one, And you shall name his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Yeshua, the Lord, is salvation. God took on human flesh and saved his people from their sins. So then, God's desire is for His grace and thus peace to be multiplied in the sphere, in the area, in the sphere of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We so often think of grace by itself, unmerited favor, so I can just do what I want. God's going to help me here. No, it's in the context of a relationship. The sphere in which God's grace increases is in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus You see, when you begin to know him better, we will see him rightly through the word. We will rely more and more upon him in our relationship with him. When our knowledge of Christ increases rightly and from his word, we will begin to expand our understanding of who he is, what he's done for us, and rely and trust in him. And his grace is manifest in our lives. Notice he says multiplied in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus the term knowledge here comes from a Greek word, epinosis. It's an intensified cognate of the term gnosis. It speaks of a fuller or true knowledge. Now, we know there is knowledge that does not include a relationship. We understand I can have knowledge. But here, this knowledge is knowledge that is integral in a relationship. We understand that, right? Let me illustrate I can say I know our president, right? I know him. I have knowledge concerning him. But we do not have a relationship. I have knowledge, but there is no relationship. Now, the knowledge we see here is a knowledge in terms of a relationship. I know my wife. I know her. We have a relationship. And how do we grow in this relationship? It is through true knowledge of one another.
Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.